on the Sabbath. So real basic understanding of the Old Testament, God created the earth and the heavens and all of that in six days, and he rested on the seventh. And then around the time of Moses, God gave them 613 commands, and one of those commands, it's found in the Ten Commandments actually, is to honor the Lord on the Sabbath and rest on the seventh day. And so God was very strict with them. He said, don't do that. And there's a story in the Bible of a guy gathering up some wood on the Sabbath, and God said, stone him, kill him. That's not what you're supposed to do. He was doing that nonchalantly. He was doing that out of disobedience. And so that punishment fit the crime. The crime was disobeying God who was providing for them. And they did not uh, have a choice on what that day was. God made it that day. Now fast forward to the time of Jesus. He's walking with them, and they're crossing through a field, which would be kind of normal. Anybody ever see Lord of the Rings? And they know, they know how they start off their journey, and they're walking through the fields, and then all of a sudden they meet the two who are stealing fruit and uh, vegetables, rather, from the fields. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Who knows the two that were stealing the vegetables? Mary and Pippin, see, my daughter knows too. I always got to look to Lydia here as well. So Mary and Pippin were stealing uh, fruit. I keep saying fruit, vegetables from those gardens. And that gives us a picture, if you've seen that kind of movie, what they're probably doing here. They're cutting through the gardens. They're cutting through the fields. And as they're doing it, they're running their hands along the wheat, and they start picking it and eating it. And the disciples are just thinking this is cool. And here the Pharisees are watching them, and they're like, hey, you guys can't do that. You're breaking the rules. And technically, they were right. That was considered harvesting. That was considered work. During the time of uh, the Exodus, when they were living in the wilderness, when they were get given manna, they were not even allowed to collect manna on the seventh day. Now, God didn't give them any manna on that day. He gave them twice as much on the day before. But they were told, don't even gather food on the Sabbath. And so the, the Pharisees are actually right to point it out, but their heart is wrong. And so what you're going to learn here is some deep theology. Somebody say, deep. You're going to go deep here, so you got to track with me because let's investigate what's going on. Number one, are they breaking the rules? I actually think they are. Some uh, theologians disagree and say that they're not. I actually believe that they are. Now, you might think to yourself, is Jesus promoting them breaking the rules? And I actually believe he is. Now, you might ask yourself, why is Jesus cool with his disciples breaking the rules when we read earlier that it says in Matthew that he has not come to change any of those Old Testament laws, but he's rather come to fulfill them? What you're going to find out is that he's going to show them loopholes in those laws, and it's okay for there to be loopholes. Now, for those of us who see everything as black and white, we're going to be like, oh, my gosh, there can't be loopholes in the law. This is, this, there's no compromise here. Just hold on to that thought as we begin to read through the scriptures. Another thing that we're going to see is that the very ones who gave them the law is now walking with them. You see, I believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he's always been the mediator between the Father and mankind. So who do I believe met with Moses on Mount Sinai and got all of those commandments? Jesus. And so Jesus is there, and he is going to explain why the laws actually have loopholes and why he's cool with his guys breaking the law. Are you ready for me to prove such a bold statement as those? Are you ready for those bold statements to be proven true? Now watch what Jesus says in verse 3 after the Pharisees say, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. You see that, Maria? He now points out a loophole that they didn't even know about. They took it for granted. Basically, David and his guys were hungry one day, and they ate the communion bread. That's what happened. They just went in the back, drank the, uh, drank the wine, ate the bread, and, and the priests were like, you're not supposed to do this. But David's like, if we don't do it, we're going to die. 
And then they said, well, at, at least have you guys not had sex for a certain period of time? And they're like, yeah, we haven't, we haven't gotten any sex for a long time. We've been out here just fighting, doing war. And they're like, okay, well, then you could come in and eat it. But it was commanded by God. Nobody can not only eat it, you can't even touch it unless you're a priest. And David and those boys were not priests. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's using logic. See, a lot of us just want to emote and be snowflakes and just say, it's right because I said it's right, or it's wrong because I feel it's wrong. Notice Jesus being logical. He's now showing them a contradiction in their very own standard. The law of non-contradiction is actually one of the main laws of logic. He's showing them, you think I'm wrong for doing this? Well, look back at David. Was David wrong for doing this? Wow, isn't that deep? So what is he now doing? He's showing them the Old Testament law had loopholes. But he doesn't stop there. He shows them another loophole in the law. Now, why is he doing that? Because Jesus doesn't like the Father, and he's trying to play tricks against the Father, be a rebellious kid while he's on earth. No, Jesus is the one who gave them the laws. Jesus knows the law frontwards and backwards. What he is doing is showing them that the Old Testament is incomplete. That's why he has come, and he's going to give them a New Testament in a new covenant. Let's keep going, please. In verse 5, or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? So now he says, you guys want to get technical and how God commanded you not to work on the Sabbath? Guess what? The priests work on the Sabbath. Look at them. They're sacrificing animals. They're doing things you can't do, and yet God lets them get away with it. Wow. Did you catch those two arguments Jesus just said? Why is it okay for his boys to harvest grain on the Sabbath? It's because the lawgiver is there, and the lawgiver is going to give a new covenant. Why was it okay in the Old Testament for them occasionally to break what we would call ceremonial laws? It's because man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 27. How many want to hear some surround sound of the Old Testament and New Testament? Come on, let's look at our Bibles. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says a few other things to this that help clarify. And then I'm going to tie it together and hopefully go a little bit deeper here for you. In Mark chapter 2, we see the same thing going on. And then he begins to teach them an extra component. Look at verse 27. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was not, excuse me, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So what is more important, man or the Sabbath? Man, according to God. See, let's get it again. Was man made for the Sabbath? No. Why was the Sabbath made? For who? For man. See, when you go back to creation, you understand God didn't need to rest. He didn't get tired after creating the universe in six days. That was nothing for him. He could have kept making more multiverses, like a place where Thor could live if he wanted to. God could have kept making all of that. No, he rested on the seventh day for man's sake, to set up a weekly calendar that would show man how to work and to rest. So it's biblical to work six days and rest one. Go back to the scripture, please, in our notes. When we look to what Jesus is saying and doing here, Jesus is basically summarizing the whole Old Testament as a bunch of works that haven't been working for the people. The loopholes keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and instead of them really realizing that it can't make them righteous and that there's loopholes in it, they keep trying to get more strict and strict and strict, and they've lost the heart of why there was these rules to begin with. Why was the old covenant given? Paul begins to expand later on in the epistles why this is true. Now, just understand this. If you were to talk to a modern Jew today, they would say, we reject Jesus because of the same reasons the Pharisees rejected Jesus. Jesus wasn't the best kind of Jew. Jesus allowed his disciples to do these kinds of things. Jesus' disciples said that you didn't have to get circumcised, which every Jew knows you have to get circumcised. And look at all the Christians. They like lechon. And, and Jews, you know, we're not supposed to eat, eat pork, and we're not supposed to eat shellfish. 
You see, they miss Jesus today just like how they missed him yesterday. Now look at the key right here in verse 8. Why is all of this happening and why is it so confusing to them? Because they don't know who Jesus is. Look at verse 8. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Put it together here. Number one, who's the one that commanded them to take off the Sabbath? Jesus. Who's the one now allowing them to break the Sabbath? Jesus. Who was Sabbath made for? The man. And now the Son of Man gets to determine what he does with the Sabbath. Does that mean Jesus broke a whole bunch of laws and the 613 laws were not important? No. First of all, notice Jesus never does that. Jesus is not eating the grain. Jesus doesn't violate the law because what he's going to do is be the perfect fulfillment of the 613. But why is he allowing the disciples to begin to do it? Because as the lawbreaker, he's allowing them to start experiencing the new covenant. He's allowing them to start experiencing what we're going to experience. And guess what modern Jews would say? They would say the new covenant is false. The new covenant changes the old covenant. It can't be true. And even they'll go so far as to say Paul corrupted the Bible. Some Jews will say, well, maybe Jesus was just kind of a radical Jew. He didn't mean to start a whole new covenant. That's what Christians did under Paul. Paul's the problem. The problem. So how do we defend Paul by what Jesus is doing, and how do we show what Jesus is doing is what Paul is teaching? Well, let's go to Paul's uh, writings. Let's go to uh, Paul, uh, uh, Galatians chapter 3 and see if you see a similarity here between the two. Do you think Paul corrupted Jesus' teachings, yes or no? Do you think Paul is fulfilling and teaching Jesus' teachings? Yes. Well, let's see if we can prove it. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Go to Galatians chapter 3 and start on verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are what? Under a curse as it is written, curse is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by what? By faith. Thank you. Keep going. Verse 12. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. The pole is the cross. Look at verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That sounds like Jesus. If you read the rest of Jesus' teachings, Jesus keeps saying almost identical the same things, which is the Jewish people are not keeping the law good enough. Why is he showing them those loopholes? Because even if you were perfect at holding to that law, it still would not be good enough to save you because in itself it has imperfections. It has imperfections. Why does the Old Testament have imperfections? It is a schoolmaster or teacher leading us to what is perfect. And this is where we get the revelation that the Lord, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, is that the perfect revelation of God is not 613 laws. It's Jesus on the cross. Now, does that mean those commandments are not important? No, they were important for those people to live by, to distinguish themselves from the nations, and it's important for us as an example, but it has its limitations. Its importance cannot equal salvation, and that's what the Jews thought, is that the importance of the law equaled their salvation, and Jesus is saying, you can't do it good enough to be saved, so get over yourselves and trust me. Trust me. Go back to the passage, please. Do you know what kind of a statement it is for Jesus to say, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath? According to the Jews, go go back to that scripture, please. According to the Jews, who is the Lord of the Sabbath? God. Who gave them the command of the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8? God. 
Now Jesus is saying the Son of Man is God of the Sabbath. That's what Lord there means, Yahweh. He is the God, the Israelite God of the Sabbath. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Let's learn about the Son of Man again. How many are familiar now with Daniel 7? We've taken you here a few times, maybe one person. Anybody else familiar with Daniel 7? Okay, a few more, thank you. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a what? A son of man. Somebody say son of man. Son of man, thank you, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. Who's the ancient of days? The father. And was led into his presence. Who's the son of man? Just making sure you're tracking, okay? He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all nations, peoples of every language. Did what? worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. According to the God who gave the Ten Commandments, which one of them is to rest on the Sabbath, how many gods can you worship? Just one. So is there multiple gods of the Sabbath? No, there's only one. So what is Jesus saying when he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath? He's saying, I'm the God who gave you those commands. Look at the very next verse. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. What do you think troubled Daniel? What troubled Daniel is that he was now experiencing the Trinity. He might have thought at this point that God was just one person. And yet now he sees the person of the Ancient of Days as who he would think is God. But now he sees another person equal to him receiving the same kind of worship that the Father receives. And that's why all throughout the scriptures we're forced into the belief of Trinitarianism. We're not trying to make it up to be philosophical. We're literally reading the scriptures and coming to the only conclusion that counts. That is, there are three persons who share the one being of God. Otherwise, he contradicts himself because there are two gods getting worshipped, the Ancient of Day God and the Son of Man God. But yet Exodus says only worship and love him alone. And isn't that why at the baptism, it's the Father speaking, the Son being baptized, and the Holy Spirit coming down? And isn't that also why that at the end of the book of Matthew, it's in the name, not names, not plural names of different gods, the name of one God we baptize in the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So go back to that passage. Let's read it now thoroughly and see if you can get it with all that theology, all that deep theology, starting again in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, that day of religious rest. His disciples were hungry, began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. They're violating the Sabbath. When the Pharisees saw this, they said, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And now Jesus starts to argue with them. He says, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Who's greater than the temple? Jesus. Do you know in the religious worship of the Jews, no one and nothing was greater than their temple other than God. God alone is greater than the temple. And now the Son of Man is standing in front of them going, hey guys, someone greater than the temple is here right now. And that someone is the Lord over all the commands of God. Love him or hate him, but you can't just call him a good man anymore. This is now the God man. A good man does not tell you he's greater than the temple. A good man does not tell you he's the Lord of the very God who gave you the commands. A good man alone cannot do that. This is the God man. 
You can't just call him a good philosopher. You can't just say he's teaching us some good morals like treat your neighbor as you want to be treated. No, at this point, you must slam on the brakes and deal with this Jesus. This Jesus is letting the law slide because he said, I gave it and I can do anything I want with it. And then if y'all get mad about it and say we're desecrating the temple, guess what? I'm greater than the temple. Now let's understand what that means. David, uh, from the time of Moses to David, the temple was really a tent, a tabernacle. And the Bible says the, the, the cloud would come by day around there and the fire by night. It was awesome. I have a picture of it up in my office. It was literally the presence of God was with them. And then Solomon built an actual temple made of brick and stone and so forth. But that temple was destroyed. And they were taken into captivity. Then when they were brought back from captivity, they rebuilt the temple. Yet there was no fireworks. There was no glory. When Solomon built the first temple, the glory of the Lord came so strong that the priests couldn't even go in and do their jobs. They were knocked out by the glory of God. Yet when the second temple was built, there was no fireworks. And as a matter of fact, it says in the Bible, those who remembered the first temple... They cried when they saw the second temple. They were that disappointed. And yet the prophets said that the second temple was going to be greater than the first temple. And how did they say it was going to be greater? Because God himself would come and visit that temple, not just send the Holy Spirit in his presence, but himself as a person. And that's why Jesus is now saying, I'm greater than the temple now, how did, listen to this question, because some people, even my Bible scholars, got it wrong in the first. So listen very clearly. How did the Jews know that that was true and that the Old Testament with those 613 laws they loved so much was abolished? What was the sign to them? The destruction of the temple. Thank you, because someone in the first service said the cross. The cross was the sign of the old coming into the new, sins being forgiven. Yes, that is true. But the Jewish people never would have thought the cross was enough because there was still a temple standing. So in their mind, Jesus could still be a false Messiah. We can do Judaism without him. We don't need that Messiah stuff. We don't have to be a Christian, a Christian. But yet Jesus said in Matthew 24, all of these stones pointing to the temple will come tumbling down on each other. That's why skeptics believed that you could never have the Gospels be earlier than 70 A.D. Because in 70 A.D., that's when Rome destroyed that temple. And we don't believe in prophecy, so these Gospels must have been written later. And the temple was already destroyed. And they say, well, Jesus said that. But we have now found that our Gospels are as written, written as early as 50 A.D., 20 sometimes 30 years before the destruction. He kept his word. It was a sign to them. From that day forward, even to today, no Jew can really be a biblical Jew. There's over 25% of those 613 laws that require them to have a temple. So what is that a sign to them? The greater temple has already come, Jesus Christ. And now he has made us his little temples, hallelujah, that the presence of God is not with priests and all those procedures. He's with his people in ordinary life doing great things. Why? Because the Son of Man is the Lord of the temple. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. The Jesus we worship is God over all of these rules and laws. And so in the new covenant, if he wanted to tell us to hop on one leg 10 times every day and say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, that's his right to do it now. And if he wants to change it right in front of them and say, go ahead, boys, eat some grain, they can do it. But what remains from the old covenant to the new covenant? Out of those 613 laws, what remains? Well, first, some people say, well, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments. Didn't we just learn the Sabbath has been changed? So only nine out of the ten. Which ones do we say remain to summarize? The moral laws. It's not like Jesus is now going to say, it's okay to lie, boys. Get it on, lie, murder, you know. No. What is going to remain the same between the old and the new covenant? Jesus' character. What is going to be different? How we do our ceremonies. How we do our purity. How we do the things in this culture. 
In the Old Testament, they were establishing a theocracy. God was over their government. They would stone for adultery, etc. How are we doing it now? We're doing it now separate from the government, waiting for the government of God to come from heaven. So we're not trying to establish a rulership. A lot of their 613 laws had to do with political laws, civil laws. But what remains? The moral laws. That's why when people ask us, well, you Christians, why are you so inconsistent? You say homosexuality is a sin, but yet you eat pork, yet you do this, yet you do this. And the Bible calls that a sin. The reason is, is because eating pork is not a moral code. Eating um, um, shrimp and, and crustaceans is not a moral code. It was a part of their ceremonies, no different than the Sabbath. Why do we worship God on Sunday when their Sabbath was a Saturday? Sunday's the first day of the week. The seventh day is what they rested on, the last day of the week. It's because our Jesus raised on what day? The first day. And so the first day of the week is when we recognize his resurrection and the tradition among Christians became Sunday. has nothing to do with the sun and the pagan gods of Rome. Don't listen to zeitgeist and foolish videos like that. We worship on the day our Lord and Savior rose. So when you read the book of Hebrews written to the Jewish people, As a matter of fact, just go there in the Bible Gateway program, please. When you go to the book of Hebrews, you've got to know a little bit about the Old Testament because that's all you're going to get from the book of Hebrews is a lot of things that were but now have changed to what is. He's going to keep talking about the old and what it meant and how we live it in the new. It's a transitional period for those people. So go to the book of Hebrews. Go there in your Bibles. I'd prefer if you can scroll it on your own, but I'm going to try to have him help you from up here. The book of Hebrews will show you some of the transitions of what happens when Jesus starts a new covenant, which, by the way, was prophesied. Start in chapter 4 of Hebrews on the Bible Gateway program. It says a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Does everybody see that in their chapter 4? So now the Sabbath rest is not just taking a day off from work. It's actually having Jesus take away the work-based salvation model, that you're working for salvation. That's what the Sabbath really was supposed to teach you, is you can't work your way to heaven. What does it say at the end of chapter 4? Jesus, the great high priest. Who's now the high priest of our new covenant? Jesus. Then the the book of Hebrews goes on into uh, chapter 8. The high priest of what? A new covenant. You're not going to be able to keep up there, brother. Sorry, that's just going to be too much. You have to be able to scroll without picking chapters. That's okay. Look at what it says in chapter 9. Please don't follow there. Go back to the other scripture. I don't want that to distract them. What does it say in Hebrews 9? It says, worship in the earthly tabernacle. In the earthly tabernacle, there was all of these symbolic things. When you would first go to there, you would see the, um, the brazen laver. Then you would see the altar. Then you would go into the place called the holy place. And then you would see the table of showbread, 12 loaves of bread representing 12 tribes. Thank you. That, now put it up there, Hebrews chapter 9. And then you would see the menorah, the seven candlesticks, representing the seven manifestations of the one Holy Spirit of God. And then you would see the altar of incense. I mean, it's amazing. And then you would go through a veil. Remember that veil is what split when Jesus was crucified. And then you would see the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represents the mercy seat of God, where the blood would be put, where our sins could be forgiven. The animal blood during their time, now the blood of Jesus. So he goes to the real Ark of the Covenant in heaven and gave his blood. And then what was in the Ark of the Covenant? What was in the Ark of the Covenant? The staff of Aaron that budded, that proved the priesthood was from Aaron. What else? Some of the manna to have them remember that God had always provided for them. And what else? The copy of the Ten Commandments. Good job. So those things were there to represent their covenant. Their covenant was based on the mercy of God, which had the law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments, the priesthood of God represented by Aaron, and then the provision, the kindness, the love of God represented in the manna. Where is it all now? Go to verse 11. Of chapter 9, so scroll down. It says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
So he goes to heaven, the real tabernacle, which Moses saw and made a pattern of on earth. He goes there and fulfills everything. And then go to chapter 10. The law is, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And as I've always shown you guys, let's look at it this way. See, Let's look at this line right here. It's always a little bit weird, but it's good for illustration purposes. If you look at the plug right there, what crosses the plug first, my actual Bible or the shadow of my Bible? What crosses that? See, the shadow. You guys get that? Now, if there was no actual, there would be no shadow. What is the actual? Everything in heaven that needed to be done. That's what those 613 laws represented. Jesus is going to fulfill all of that, and then he's going to show us what perfection looks like, what the actual is, and that's why he's stepping around them going, hey, guys, I'm here. I'm actually the representation of what all these laws were for, and I'm going to change some of them and rearrange some stuff now because it was never about the certain Sabbath day or circumcision or it was never about Lachon. We're going to get to a place where he makes, he makes it lawful to eat all the foods you want of any kind of food, right? You can even eat your pet dog if you want to. I know that would be crazy, but you could. You can eat anything but a human being, okay? But here's the, you can eat a snake, you can eat a monkey like they did in Indiana Jones, eat the monkey brain. You are able in the new covenant to eat anything you want but a human, okay? But you have to understand this. Guess what? There's another covenant coming. After the thousand-year reign, after Christ comes back and rules and reigns on the earth, the Bible says he's going to create a new heavens and new earth. At that time, we'll probably go back to a state like we were at the beginning, being vegetarians. We know there will be different laws about sex. We won't be having sex anymore. And that was one of the first commands we got. Can I hear an amen? Go be fruitful and multiply. But that's done. Won't be having sex in, that, in the new heavens and new earth. And so there's a third covenant that's coming. The old covenant has passed. We're in the, the second, the new covenant for us right now. And then one day we'll experience that. Okay? And uh, some people talk about, well, aren't the Jews going to build a third temple? Yes, they are. They're going to do that out of rebellion because they're not accepting Jesus as the final authority. But out of God's mercy, after the Antichrist, according to Revelation, defiles that temple, and they literally see it get messed up for the third time. Because of their sin, they have, they're going to have lost the third temple. They lost the first one, the second one, and then the third. Then the Bible says their eyes finally open, 144,000 get saved, 12,000 from each tribe. They become in-time evangelists, and then God comes back and spares Israel. And Jew and Gentile live in Israel and rule the nations for that thousand-year reign. The Bible is clear. Let's go back to the notes. Thank you. That the Bible is clear, though, today, who is the Lord of the Sabbath? That's what we're supposed to get out of this message, is that the Son of Man, Jesus, is the Lord of the Sabbath. So he has the right to have it changed now. And aren't his disciples still working and doing things on the Sabbath? Yep, because you did stuff yesterday you weren't supposed to do. If you lived in Israel, you would have got killed over. How many are glad Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? Amen. Amen. Now, what do you think a Jewish person should react? Uh, how do you think, I should say rather, how do you think they should react now that their God is with them? They should be humble. They should be like, you're God. Okay, we get it. Teach us now what to do. But is that what happens no, they eventually crucify him. Let's keep taking that road to Calvary and see how we get there. Verse 9, it says, Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, notice they had nothing against him. They couldn't even say he was picking grain. Why? Because he's going to follow it to the letter of the law for their nitpicking mindset. He doesn't have to if he doesn't want to, but for the fulfillment of the law and to silence their mouths, he's going to show them, I never break the law, even according to your standard. I never do it. He might break some of the rabbinical traditions, but not of the 613. But he's letting the disciples kind of ease on in. He's like, you boys can start doing this. This is okay. Go ahead. Run your hands through the field. So they're going to ask him now, is it working when you heal somebody? That's basically what they're trying to do. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to figure it out, like, is healing work? Because if it's work, then you're breaking the Sabbath. So everything about him being the Lord of the Sabbath, 
went right over their head. Everything about there being loopholes in the Sabbath that even their heroes, like their priests and, and David, found psh, goes right over their head. They're right back to looking at Jesus for an excuse to hate him. So they go to that place. They go to the synagogue. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Verse 11, he said to them, if any one of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. So he goes, dude, come on. If you had an animal that was hurting on the Sabbath, guess what? God would allow you to find a loophole to go there and get your animal out and do some work. Guess what? Healing people is better than healing or helping your animal. So he puts it back at them. And now verse 14, they all then rejoiced and said, aha, we got it. We now understand how the Sabbath works and who you are. No, look what it says in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. There you go. There you go. That's what religion will do to you. Now, before we all point our fingers at these Oompa Loompas and go, look at how stupid they are. The Lord of the Sabbath is literally there explaining everything to them, including the loopholes, while he's doing miracles that would be impossible without God's strength and power. How dumb are these guys? Before we judge them, let's just ask ourselves a question. How many times has Jesus told us about things we should be learning and doing and we get upset with him and push him away. See, I tell the story, I told the story in the first service. I'd love to see our young people do it. So wherever Joe B's at and Karina, I would love for you guys to teach this skit to the young people. All you need is two people. You can use a girl or a guy, but let's just say it's a girl, and then somebody to play Jesus. And so the skit's real simple. The girl goes to church, she meets Jesus, and then Jesus comes home with her. And then it shows like her and Jesus reading the Bible together, praying, like doing all these cool things together because it's Jesus hanging out with Jesus. Then she gets a phone call from one of her friends to go do something that really she's not supposed to do. Maybe go out with guys or go get drunk or party or something. And you can hear her going like, yeah, I probably shouldn't. But the friend keeps talking to her and then she's like, and she kind of like looks at Jesus and then she makes that decision like, Okay, I'll go, I'll go, I'll see you there in a little bit. But now she realizes she gotta go, she gotta go back and talk to Jesus. So she, you know, she's like, Jesus, listen, I'm gonna go out with my friends. I just want you to stay right here. I'm gonna go do this thing, and I, Jesus, I'll be right back. And in the story, you know, Jesus just comes 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 to her while she's leaving, and he's like tapping her on the shoulder, and he's like, Come on, let's do this, you know, like let's do this. And and she's like, No, Jesus, you know, kind of pushing him back. And then, you know, she's going further towards the door. And then Jesus, you know, points to her, let's pray, let's talk, you know. And then eventually, what does she do? She takes Jesus' hand, nails it here. Then she takes his other hand, nails it there. Then she takes his feet, nails it here. And then she says, you stay there, Jesus. You see, aren't we all found in the attitude of the Pharisees that would rather kill him than listen and obey him? You see, we get continually convicted by Jesus how it should be done, how it should be done. Life should be done this way. And instead of making him the Lord of our Sabbath or the Lord of our sexuality or the Lord of our politics or the Lord of our marriage or the Lord of our finances, we say, you stay there, Jesus. Get out of our religion. After all, who do you think you are? Our God? See, we do that to Jesus. Jesus, who do you think you are? My creator? Yeah. That's who he thinks he is because that's who he is. And so often we treat him like he's less than that. Jesus is not there taking the law flippantly. He's not saying you could just do whatever you want. No, people would die for things like that. But what he's showing them is there's a greater covenant and I get to change it whenever I want. And you have to obey because that shows your heart for God. Like, were you being a Jew just to be a Jew or were you being a Jew to please your God? Because when God starts showing you things that aren't Jewish, are you going to get all upset and say, I'd rather be a Jew without God than to be something else with God? Like, I don't want to give up all my rules. I don't want to give up all my way of living. I don't want to give up all my thoughts and my dreams 
I would rather do it on my own than to do it differently with God. It isn't that why there's a hell. What is hell? Hell is really just people saying, I want to do it my own way. I don't want to do it God's way. And here, literally, he's telling them, I'm going to show you what it looks like when it's done my way. Miracles happen. Lives are changed. Things that religion would never give you, even the greatest religion, like the Jewish religion, the one I even invented, he's saying. He's saying, I still have something better than that. And it's up to you whether or not you just want to be chilling at home on a Sabbath or hanging out with the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what my dad describes as going to church as a Roman Catholic. He would always see Jesus, see Jesus, hear about Jesus. But then when he became a born-again Christian, he met Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. See, these people are getting the opportunity now to make a choice. Do they want religion or do they want Jesus? And instead of choosing Jesus, they choose their religion, and now they got to get rid of Jesus. Let's not get rid of Jesus, amen? Let's get rid of our stinking thinking before we get rid of Jesus. Are you ready to keep going in the story? Amen. Let's keep going. Two of you are ready, but uh, I'll, go, I'll go for you guys. Look at what then the Bible says in verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. So now he knows they're going to want to kill him. But he does not stay in that place to die then. He's going to control his own destiny. He knows when it's going to be time. The Father's going to tell him. So he is going to wait for that right time. So he withdraws. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. Have you ever wondered about why that's even in the Bible? Aren't we supposed to tell everybody about Jesus? Aren't we supposed to go on the mountains and the hills and everywhere and tell people about Jesus? Aren't we supposed to go downtown and shout it out? Aren't we supposed to go to our coworkers? Why is Jesus saying, don't talk about me? We call this the messianic secret. Until Jesus is crucified, he is going to stay predominantly with the Jews and with his disciples. He is not going to try to be a public figure. He's not going to try to be their Socrates. He's not going to try to be their Caesar. What he is going to do is he's going to come into the public sphere, make some trouble to their worldview, but bring some light to the real worldview, and then back off into the the wilderness, and whoever follows him, he's going to give his deeper teachings to. So he's going to kind of come out and be like, boom, 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 and then he's going to go withdraw and he's going to see who follows him. And the Bible says he did this that he might fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Did anybody see the Trinity who wasn't in the first service? There's the Trinity in one phrase. One phrase. You see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who sees it? You see it? Where do you see it at? Did you raise your hand? No, yeah, I thought you raised your hand. Did you raise your hand? Did anybody over here raise their hand? Am I just seeing stuff? Okay, I saw stuff. Where is it at? Yeah, but what's the phrase? Give me the phrase in the passage. Where do you see the Trinity? Yeah, you got, here's my servant, but there's a phrase. There's a phrase. Does anybody else see it? I'm going to help her in just a minute. Keep helping yourself. Yes? Yes. Here is my servant whom I've chosen. That's still what she's saying. That's part of it. I'll show you the Trinity. Highlight this right here. I will put my spirit on him. There's the phrase. Who's the I speaking? See? Where's the, where's the spirit? Or who is the spirit? Holy Spirit. And who's the him? You see that there's the phrase. You guys had the Father speaking to the Son, but you didn't have the Spirit. One phrase, the triune God. I will put my Spirit on him. Isn't that so beautiful? The baptism shows that. So the prophet Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus would come. The Father was going to put his Spirit on the Son, and then now watch what the Son is going to be like. And he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. But hold hold on, I thought he was just arguing in the verses before. Yeah, but his modus operandi isn't going to be to pick a fight. He only will get in the fight if you start it. And then it says, he will not cry out. Yeah, but doesn't John 7.37 say he cried out at the last day of the feast? Yeah, but he's not crying out all the time. That's not what he was known for. What will he be known for? It says you won't even hear his voice in the streets. Why? Because most of the time he's going to be in the wilderness. 
What's he going to be known for? Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break. Come on, somebody, let that encourage you. You might feel like you are bruised and you are bent all the way over and you're about ready to break and fall into pieces. And God says, instead of pushing you down and breaking you completely, he's going to actually restore you. That's what he'll be known for. And a smoldering, smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You might feel like life is just leaving you, like you're just down and out, like, man, it's all your passion is almost gone. Jesus is not going to come and go and just blow you out. No, he's going to build you back up, give you more fire. It says a bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. So until all the world hears the gospel, he's not bringing his judgment. Now watch this in verse 21. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Shouldn't Isaiah have stopped and said, "Uh, uh-uh, Father, it's your name, the Father. That's whose name we're going to put our hope in." But no. Who must you confess as Lord to be saved? Must you say the Father is Lord to be saved? The Spirit is Lord to be saved? What name must you confess to be saved? Jesus. Somebody say it again. Jesus is Lord. That's what Romans 10 says you must say to be saved. So both the Father and the Spirit point everybody towards Jesus. He is the center of the Trinity on purpose. Now, theologians you know, talk about when did the counsel of the Father, Son, and the Spirit decide Jesus would be the one glorified? How did that happen? You know, from eternity past, some point, the Son was going to be chosen for our sake as our Savior, and it would be His name. I don't know in the, in the counsel of God how that happened. It doesn't say it in the Scriptures. But we do know in Philippians chapter 2 why the Father and the Spirit both glorify the Son in his name. It's because he came and died for us. In the Trinity, Jesus' sacrifice is the greatest act of love. Some of us think about only in regards to how he died for us, that that's the greatest act of love, which is beautiful. But the very fact that he allowed himself to be separated from his father, to come from heaven to earth, that showed them among the Father, Son, and Spirit the greatest act of love. And so Jesus is the name. Jesus is the center of the Trinity. And there's the prophecy. So until Judgment Day, Jesus is not having an argument with, with uh, um, Steve Harvey on the, on the TV show. Jesus is not coming down and making everybody believe in him. That is not going to be his method. And this is a revelation for a lot of you who have heard sassy people say, well, why doesn't he prove it to me? Why doesn't he prove it to me? Guys, he didn't even prove it when he walked the earth. He hid from them all the time. Why? Because he was going to be only for those who wanted to seek. Then he would be found. Only those who would want to knock on the door would he answer it. And for only those who would ask would they receive. Jesus wasn't going to be their superhero. Jesus was coming to be their savior and to honor their free will. He wasn't going to force them by putting on a magic show and arguing every day and proving it to the point where it didn't take faith anymore. He was putting faith as the doorway to get to know him. And that's why after this, we're going to start getting all these parables of Jesus and all the time, Jesus is going to say, Who ha- whoever has an ear, let him hear. Why? Because it's like if you're not paying attention, you're not going to get it. And then at some point, even his disciples are confused. And then he gets frustrated with them and he says, listen, guys, all you have to do is ask and I'll tell you what they mean. And then every time they don't know what it means, he tells them what it means. But guess what? He says, I'm not telling everybody else what it means. So that even means there was a click within the click. That means if you were around the first disciples like this that heard everything, but you didn't go to the 101 or 201 or whatever, you weren't hearing the next things because you had to get closer and closer. So the click wasn't based on how cool you are, how much money you have, where where you live. No, the click was how close do you want to get to Jesus. And I say the same thing here. You want to be an elder from Charlie in the front row all the way back to Joy in the back row, some of our new people. You want to be an elder or deacon, come as close as you want. We're waiting for you. Because we're all coming close to Jesus, amen? But if you want to stay on the outskirts, if you want to be just that one that shows up every now and then, you don't want to go so deep with him. He'll let you be like that with him. But see, I want to go deep with him. I want to be, hey, guess what? There was a click within the click of the click. 
because there was hundreds, if not thousands, at times disciples, and then he would only explain it to the 12 or so, about the 100 that would hang out with them, and then guess what? When he would go on trips, he would only bring three, Peter, James, and John. I'm not trying to say we need to compete in this church for, church for position, but I'm saying you better get as close to Jesus as you want again. Don't blame it on anybody else holding you back, amen? I want you to hear his heartbeat because the Bible says he is not going to quarrel with you. He is not going to argue himself into your heart. You can study him. You can ask questions of him. The Bible says you can reason with him, but he is not out to prove it. He's just out to show it. And I think if you read the word and you take your time and you pray and you go to some Bible studies, you're going to want to get close to him. Can I hear an amen? How many are close to Jesus? Amen. Let's go to our, our last section here. He then now wants to explain to them the work of the devil because the, oh, let me read the prophecy. I didn't even get a chance. Oh, I did read the prophecy. Yes, I did. Sorry. So now he's going to go to the work of the devil. Verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Now remember, not all sickness makes you, uh, not all demon possession leads to sickness, but some can. So whenever you're praying for your sickness, just take the time to rebuke the devil and be safe. Amen? Be like, take some medicine and be like, Jesus, heal me, and then be like, I rebuke you, Satan, in the name of Jesus, cold, get away from me. And just watch. Anything leave you or anything, you know? We have had some people in the church that think every time you're sick, you need a demon cast out of you, but we don't approve that teaching here, okay? We're not, we're not calling every sickness a demon. And by the way, that's kind of the superstition that when people would sneeze, they would say, God bless you, because they thought that was spiritual. But that's being superstitious and silly, okay? So this man gets healed, and now he can talk. Verse 23, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? So the normal folks are like, man, we're getting it now. Like they're cluing into who Jesus is. Man, he must be God among us, Emmanuel, as we learned from the very beginning. The Pharisees, not so much. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Psst, right over their head again. Stupid is as stupid does, right? And every now and then people will call a good church a cult. Amen. Somebody told us, I think it was Christina was testifying last week as she's being ordained. She was like, when I first started coming to this church, my parents thought I was in a cult, you know? No, you are not in a cult. You are just in a church that believes in demons getting cast out, sickness being healed, Jesus being Lord. Amen. A cult is a different kind of thing. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But anyways, they go, oh, he must be doing this because he's, he's dev the devil himself or he's hanging out with Satan. Verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. Everybody go, no, every, I was going to say, um, I was going to say, no, duh. I want to be, be more mature than that, okay? I'm going to be more mature than that. Everybody go, how foolish. There we go, how foolish. It's like, you're not going to win a war shooting your own soldiers. He's like explaining to them basic stuff. But because of their religious mindset, they just don't get it. They honestly think the devil would be there doing all of that. It's foolishness. He says, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive out demons? So once again, he puts it right back on them. So then you will be your, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God I drive out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Hallelujah. Let's just close this out. A few more verses here. Or again, he just tells the story again. How many are glad for preachers who repeat themselves? Amen. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. How many know you don't steal from yourself? And if you're going to steal from somebody else, you got to tie them up, right? Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And remember, there is an age to come. The kingdom of God will come on the earth. 
As we believe in this church, when Jesus comes back, he rules and reigns with us for a thousand years. Those of us who have lived for Jesus will be here in glorified bodies. We'll be like the superheroes among the people who are living ordinary lives for a thousand years. But then after that, he recreates the new heavens and earth. All those who didn't serve him go to the lake of fire, and then we're with him in what I like to call the third covenant, the third way of doing things, where there is no more sex, there is no more preaching. There is a lot of those things that have changed. For the thousand years in that age, we're still doing it. We're still preaching. There's, we're not having sex with the people around us are, the, you know, the, the normal humans at that time as we're glorified humans. And so the Bible is saying that in both of these ages, and I believe it's in the age we're in now and then the thousand-year reign, if you ever get on the bad side of the Holy Spirit, you're not getting in. Now, let me explain this because a lot of people have wondered what is the blasphemy, uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin John talks about as well in one of his epistles. First of all, notice the Trinity again, two persons, The Son is not the Spirit. There are some people who are oneness Pentecostals that believe that God is the Father, Son, and the Spirit all as one person. And so it's like Jesus is being baptized, and then he's up here as the Father talking to himself. Hello, Son, I'm very proud of you today. And then here comes the Holy Spirit. Literally, they believe it's one person doing all of that. That is false. They are separate persons, just like my wife and I are one in marriage but separate persons. They are one in divinity but separate persons. And so Jesus is going, you can say whatever you want about the Son of Man. You, you, can, you can slander me, you can blaspheme me, and, and you can ask for forgiveness, and then you'll be good. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Not in this age or in the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign to come. Now, I know there's some atheists that actually took the blasphemy challenge. They went online. They said, I I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and I want to go to hell. Now I've ensured that I can never be saved. And they think that's really what it is. No. Go back to understanding the passage. Jesus is doing work by the Holy Spirit. Because remember, he doesn't come as Superman. He's not using his own power. The Son is using the Spirit's power. That's why he received the Spirit at the baptism, because he's an example of what man can be by the Holy Spirit. Does everybody get that? He's dependent upon the Holy Spirit like how we are. That's why in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on us, and now we can do what he does. And so what is he saying? He is saying, if you look at what the Spirit is doing and you call it Satan, you'll never be forgiven. Because how can you be forgiven unless you're convicted by the Holy Spirit and drawn to Jesus? The Bible says the only way you can be born of the Spirit is by the Holy Spirit. So here's the catch-22. If you don't believe in the Spirit and what the Spirit's doing in your life, you'll never be saved. But if you believe in what the Spirit's doing in your life, you will be saved. And so the catch-22 is you can't disagree with the Spirit and be saved. You have to have the Holy Spirit to be saved. So I don't want you to think, well, when I was a sinner, I used to listen to death metal and I cursed out God and the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you took one of those challenges online. That doesn't mean you're not saved. Or can't be saved, rather. What it means is you now have to acknowledge the Holy Spirit because as long as you are in a place of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you'll never have a relationship with him. And the way I look at it is it's really the sin of pride that has you blaspheme the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will talk to you and you'll be like, no, that's not God. And you may not call it the devil, but you'll just be like, no, that's stupid. That's what that church talks about or or that's... uh, My upbringing, my parents told me that. And instead of acknowledging what you're hearing from your conscience as God, you'll attribute what God is doing to something else, and therefore you'll never be saved. Think about it. Every one of us, how did you get saved? The Holy Spirit spoke to you. He spoke to your conscience. It wasn't just your bright idea. The Bible says you can't get saved unless the Holy Spirit draws you. So now do you get it? If you always are pushing back the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. Because you need to accept the Holy Spirit to be forgiven. Because here's here's a great example. Because if the Holy Spirit keeps telling you that like homosexuality is sin and you keep going, that's of the devil, Jesus made me this way to be like this, well then guess what? You'll never be forgiven of the sin of homosexuality because you think that homosexuality is natural and you think that not being homosexual is of the devil. Do you get how you twist it? And then you can't be saved. The only ones that can be saved are those who confess their sins. Well, who tells you what a sin is? Not your culture. The Holy Spirit, as you are, preach the word of God. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Just scroll up a little bit, and I want to close out with Rachel, please. 
Uh, scroll up previous to the passages we've already been to. Stop right there, please. The Bible says this in verse 30. At, 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 at this point, we're going to close. It says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I want you to think about this. It's not just the first part. Whoever is not with me is against me. It's not just that. It's also whoever does not gather with me scatters. Who is capable of committing these kinds of uh, scattering? Or who, who's capable of being against Jesus? Let's take the first phrase. Whoever is not with me is against me. Well, whoever doesn't acknowledge Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath is against him. So all world religions that do not consider Jesus to be the eternally uh, begotten Son of God who came in the flesh to be with us, died on the cross, buried, third day rose again for our sins. Whoever doesn't believe that, they're against Jesus, okay? Whoever doesn't believe there's even a God, they're against Jesus. So there is no middle of the road here. But now watch this. Most of America, even still to this day, 60 70%, would say, I'm not against Jesus. They would mark on a census. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross. Most people will still say, I believe that. But then, are they gathering or are they scattering? Because the book of Matthew taught us that many will say on the judgment day, Lord, Lord. They'll call him Lord. Remember, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of all. There will be people on Judgment Day that will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out devils in your name, help the poor, do all of these things in your name? And then he says, I will say back to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. So listen, you could be one of the many people who said, I was for Jesus. I wasn't against him but you were actually scattering at the same time because what you were saying wasn't lining up with what you believed or what you were doing wasn't lining up with what you were saying rather. So here's my question. Is Jesus just the one you say is Lord of all or is he actually the one you follow as Lord of all? Because if he's Lord of the Sabbath, then that means you follow him on the Sabbath. And then if he's Lord of your job, then you follow him on your job. And if he's Lord of your sexuality, then he's going to be there in your marriage and until you get married and married in your purity. You're not just going to say one thing and do another because Jesus says it doesn't work like that with him. You not only have to be for him, you also have to gather with him. So when was the last time you talked to somebody and you asked them why they don't go to church and they said, it's because of hypocrites. When was the last time? For me, it was, I think, last week. Happens to me all the time. I talk to people, why don't you go to church? When was the last time you were in church? And they always say, oh, man, it's because of those hypocrites. I hear that all the time. Now, when they tell me there's hypocrites, are they in their mind expecting everybody to be perfect? No, because in, in, even in their worldview, they're like, nobody's perfect, you know. So what is their problem? What their problem is, is that people are saying one thing and doing another. And so here's the question I want to ask you. Do you want to be with Jesus and help him gather? Because otherwise, you're actually part of the problem. I was sharing this in the first service that I have neighbors that have known me for over seven years and they have never said to me, Joe, you are a hypocrite. Joe, you're this or that. They always say, this is one of the first questions that I met that I like and you're a cool pastor and these kinds of things. I'm not saying everybody's going to be your best buddy, but they, can, they should be able to look at your life and see there's not only a profession, there's a lifestyle that goes with it. Because otherwise, if you're just saying here on Sunday, yeah, Jesus is Lord, I believe it, he came and brought a new covenant, but you're out there on Monday cussing or looking at pornography or, or doing things on the side that you shouldn't be doing, you're scattering the church. You're not gathering it. I want to have a church of people that want to not only acknowledge Jesus and be like, man, I'm on your team, but want to play with Jesus and help gather. And how do we help gather? By showing people what it's like to live for Jesus. 
So let's say I'm showing somebody how to ride a bike for the first time, and I'm helping them ride the bike, right? Like I did this for two adults in this church thus far, literally one in their 20s and one in their 30s. No one ever taught them how to ride a bike, and I was showing them how to ride a bike. I wish I could call them out. They'd get a little embarrassed, but it still would be funny. I'm deciding even right now if I should. No, I'm not. I'm not. You guys would think I was mean. If I had more of a laugh after that, I probably would have. Like, you would have pumped me up. You would have influenced me. Point them out, Pastor Joe. Point them out. Well, when they're learning to ride a bike as a 20-year-old, it's a little bit harder to hold them. You know, like this is my, like my four-year-old. All my children know how to ride their bike by their four or five years old. So, you know, they get a little bike like that. That's easy. When you got a big boy on there, you know, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of work. Well, as I start helping them and, you know, they're kind of stumbling a little bit, I don't then just mock them and say, you know what, you're so stupid, you shouldn't be like that, you should have gotten this from, you know, from the beginning, you should have learned when you were four. No, what do I do with them? I help them and then I show them how it can be done. What I don't do is then get on it and pretend I don't know how to ride. I don't get on it and go, whoa, it is really hard. See, nobody's perfect at riding a bike either. Look at this. No, I help them patiently, but then what do I do? I show them that I actually can ride. And so what are we supposed to do when we're gathering the church and gathering God's people and inviting our friends? As we can say to them, man, I know what it's like to sin. I know what it's like to make mistakes. We relate. We don't think we're better than them. We don't put them down. But then what do we do? We show them it actually works. We show them our marriage works. We show them our life works. We show them that God actually works. And so, just one last question. Are you saying one thing and doing another? Because if you are, you're actually not helping the church. You're scattering the church. You're scattering God's people. I want us to be a church that says, Jesus, you are Lord of all. And then I want us to say to a world, come gather together and see what it looks like. Come see what it looks like when people live with Jesus as Lord of all. And yes, yeah, sometimes we have to repent. I've had to repent before my neighbors. I've had to make, uh, make it right, you know. I'm not saying I don't... I'm sinless, but what I'm saying is I'm showing them this is what it's like to live a life with Jesus. This is what it's like to go forward with the Lord. Because as we go on from here, we're going to start learning a whole lot of kingdom principles. But unless we're willing to do them and put them in action, just saying, oh, I agree with it, that's not going to mean anything. When he starts teaching us some of the tough teachings here, we've got to be able to go, man, I'm going to do that, Jesus. And we can say to our brothers and sisters, come watch me. Come to Bible study because I'm going to do it, and you can do it, and we can all do this together and gather the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand up and give it up for Jesus. Come on. Amen. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? Let's close in, uh, close in prayer. Let's make this real.